This is a crowd podcast. It's dark. The air's heavy with heat. But there's something else too. All around, there are whispers, expectation and excitement. Multiplied by the thousand, fans crane for a clearer look at the stage to see if the rumours are true. Then, it happens. Orchestral strings soar out of towering speakers. The opening chords rise towards the mountain peaks beyond and a figure emerges. He walks out the gloom and into the spotlight, shirtless, ripped with muscle. Across the top of his abs, there's a tattoo. A diamond crucifix hangs from his neck. It sparkles as it bounces off his pecs. His arms are stretched out, making another cross. The crowd roars. What the fuck is up, Coachella? He yells. What the fuck is up, Coachella? Tupac's back. Or a version is. It's 2012. The stage is on a polo club's lawn. The crowd have paid hundreds of dollars each for their tickets. And Tupac's been dead for more than a decade. This Tupac? It's a hologram. A clever mix of lasers and lightning, smoke and mirrors. An illusion that resurrects a rap god. It looks good. But only from one angle. The crowd sees what they want to see. The hologram Tupac raps about guns and blood, violence and revenge. His tattoo glistens as he spits lyrics. In big letters, it spells out, Thug Life. But a hologram doesn't have depth and dimensions. It lacks a background. It doesn't stand up to the scrutiny. And Tupac is more than the myth, more than the mirage. He's a gangster and a genius. A cliché death, but a unique life. America's grim reality. And its sacred dream. All in one. This is Death of a Rockstar. Tupac. The camera zooms in tight. Two large brown eyes fill the frame as it finds its focus. They blink gently. The camera zooms back out. Thick eyebrows, short, tight hair, a wide grin, clear skin. Tupac is 17. He sits against a white wall. He's the new kid in school, and his teachers are interviewing him to get his measure. The first question is a warm-up. How does he like being 17? Tupac thinks for a second. Then he talks about the strange limbo of being out of childhood but short of adulthood with its rights, responsibilities and respect. Over the next half hour, he's witty, articulate, intelligent, charismatic and kind. He knows his own mind, but he considers others. He admits he goofs around in school but there's no hiding the fierce, inquisitive mind. This is how he describes his upbringing. My mother taught me three things. To have respect, 
to search for knowledge and to speak my mind while listening to others. If money was nothing, if everything depended on moral standing, the way you treat people, we would be millionaires. But instead, we're stone broke. Our ideals always get in the way. These ideals came before Tupac was even out of the womb. It's 1971. His mother, Efeni, is 23, five months pregnant and on the stand. The New York courtroom is packed. The charges are long and serious. The atmosphere is heated. Efeni's part of the Black Panthers, a group set up to fight for black rights, independence and freedom from police brutality. She's not denying that, not at all. She's proud. But the government's lawyers say there's more, that she's part of a conspiracy to kill policemen, bomb buildings, to set America ablaze. The fuel's already there. Martin Luther King and Malcolm X have been gunned down. And the FBI say the Black Panthers are the biggest threat to America's way of life. She's facing charges that add up to more than 300 years in prison. With all that attention, with the possibility of a life sentence hanging over her, Afeni makes an extraordinary decision. She chooses to defend herself in court. Untrained, heavily pregnant, she takes the stand. Not only as defendant, but also acting as her own lawyer, cross-examining witnesses and making her case to the jury. This is how Afeni remembers it. I thought this was the last time I could speak before they locked me up forever. I thought I was writing my own obituary, but she wasn't. She defends her group, savages the police's tactics, describes life in black America, and it swings the jury. The chairman delivers the verdicts. It takes him 20 minutes to go through all 156 charges. On all of them, Afeni and her fellow Black Panthers are found not guilty. A month later, she gives birth to Tupac. And that same spirit runs through the teenager. Aged 14, he raps for a crowd for the first time. His opening line is, Yo, Enoch Pratt, bust this. But... Enoch Pratt isn't a DJ or a rival MC. He's a 19th century businessman who founded a public library in Baltimore. Tupac's competing in an under-18 rap contest. No profanity allowed. And the lyrics have to promote reading and studying. Other kids might have shunned it. Not Tupac. Learn to read, get the credits that you need, he raps as he struts across the stage. And he wins. A couple of years later, at a town hall meeting about Baltimore's drug and gang problem, Tupac jumps to his feet to speak in front of the crowd and the mayor. He describes how in his neighborhood, law-abiding, church-going families scrape by while their drug-dealing neighbors drive Mercedes and wear Rolex watches. This is how Tupac sums up that inconvenient truth. If you're a kid growing up and you're taking a look at those situations, 
Who do you think the winners are? At school, he's more often speaking other people's lines rather than spitting his own. Acting, not rapping, is his passion. He studies Ibsen, Shepard, Shakespeare. He reads Othello for the rest of his class, the part where the general, tortured with jealousy, plots to kill his wife. The teacher stops the class and says, I want you all to remember this moment. You will never, ever, in your lifetime, hear Othello as well as you just heard it now. He's a star. Whatever role he feels, actor, rapper, schoolboy, you can't take your eyes off him. But a Fanny who gives him so much takes from him too. The crack that seeps across the country has her hooked. She can't keep a job, so Tupac works nights and weekends, bussing tables and wiping floors to keep money coming in. And when she needs a new start, away from Baltimore, away from its temptations, away from Tupac's performing art school, he goes too. The path changes, a door closes, and Tupac's future shifts. The door closes with a heavy clang. A bolt swivels and Tupac's alone. Five feet by ten feet, a small bed frame, a thin mattress, a sink, a toilet fixed to the wall, bars on the windows, muffled shouts from along the hall, the stench of bodies and urine, the Rolex, the gold, the trademark bandana, they're all gone. Instead, he wears a prison-issued orange t-shirt and plain grey trousers, no belt. What he has got, though, is time to think, to stew, to plot. He's serving time for a sexual assault charge. Tupac says he's innocent, that it's a setup, that he wouldn't do something like that. But he mixes in company that would. Underground high rollers and gangland enforcers. Men used to taking what they want without consequence. Tupac's friends are like that, but so are his enemies. He hears his sentence from a wheelchair, bandaged around the head and hand. Yesterday, he was shot five times. Two bullets grazed his head. One went through his hand, another into his thigh. The final one to the scrotum. It's not just his body that's scarred, it's his mind. His lyrics have always been clever, touching. One hit is about the plight of a preteen mother and her baby. In another he raps, you know it makes me unhappy when brothers make babies and leave a young mother to be a pappy. In Dear Mama, he talks to Afeni, his own single mother. He remembers her scraping together a Thanksgiving meal with her welfare check and the joy he feels in sending her the money now. The talent to reveal the everyday truth brings him extraordinary wealth and fame. But sitting in his cell, the pressure builds. His mother's addiction, his legal costs, and most of all, a sense of betrayal. Tupac doesn't think this was a random robbery. He thinks darker forces were at work. That a rival rapper, Notorious B.I.G., has turned from friend to foe. That Biggie was trying to take him out of the rap game for good. 
Safe behind the locked cell door, Tupac plans his next move with help from history. He reads Machiavelli, an Italian philosopher from 500 years ago. He reads how power is Machiavelli's priority, how he outflanks his enemies and demands respect. As a teenager, Tupac says his family's ideals got in the way in a dog-eat-dog world, but now he resolves to come out snarling. This is what Tupac says he learned from Machiavelli. I idolize that type of thinking where you do whatever's going to make you achieve your goal. And soon enough, that's exactly what Tupac's doing. When Suge Knight strides into the visiting room, he feels it. He's six foot two, nearly 19 stone, a former NFL player. He's in a new game now though. He runs death row records. Rap is rolling out of the ghettos and sweeping through suburban America. Its edge and fury appeals to disillusioned youth of all colors. And no one does edge like death row. Suge and his cronies have intimidated their way to the top of the West Coast rap scene. Now, he set his sights on the East, where Notorious B.I.G. is king. He offers Tupac a deal. He offers to post his bail, more than a million dollars, if he'll sign with Death Row. But Suge also offers him an alliance. Together, Suge promises they'll take down Tupac's enemies. I really did believe no black person would shoot me, Tupac tells an interviewer. I thought I was their representative, their ambassador to the world. During my time in jail, I've been thinking about how to make them sorry that they ever did this to me. Tupac signs that deal and walks straight into the studio. He records a double album called All Eyes On Me. On the cover, his right hand forms a W, signifying the West Coast. His left clutches a diamond-encrusted Death Row Records medallion. His comeback single is called California Love. It's a vow of allegiance to the West Coast and his new label. He films a video for it right in the middle of Compton. Locals look on as he drives around in a soft top Mercedes with a back seat full of girls. Another of the tracks he lays down is called Hit Em Up and it's angrier, a lot angrier. In it, he calls out Biggie by name. He claims he slept with Biggie's wife and warns him he's coming for revenge. And he's coming armed. The war is real. East versus West. It sends sails rocketing skywards. It makes Suge, Tupac and Biggie rich. But the violence escalates too. Shots fired on tracks rebound into real life. Okay, time for a quick ad break, but in a minute I'll be back and I'll tell you all about the chaos that comes next. Hello, Rockstar listeners. It is Tom here. Now, I'm one of the writers on the show and was behind quite a few of the episodes, ones like George Michael, John Lennon, Donny Hathaway and Otis Redding. I wanted to tell you quickly about DistroKid, who we've partnered with to provide Rockstar listeners with a special deal that we think you will love. Are you a musician and wondering how you can get more bang for your buck with your music? Well, 
get yourself on DistroKid. That's D-I-S-T-R-O-K-I-D. DistroKid is revolutionising the music business. It's the easiest way for musicians to get music onto places like Spotify, Apple, Amazon, TikTok, YouTube. Well, you name it, they can get it there. You get unlimited uploads. You'll enjoy more features than any other music distributor and you'll get to keep 100% of your earnings. Here are just some of the things that it lets you do. Okay, easily pay your collaborators with a special feature called splits. Send huge files to anyone with their InstaShare feature. Make mini videos to use on your socials. And stop sneaky thieves stealing your music and using it without your permission with their DistroLock feature. There's also an app where you can see your DistroKid account in one place. Check your Apple and Spotify stats and withdraw earnings. The DistroKid app is available now on iOS and Android. So head to the Apple Store or Google Play to download it. And here is the best bit. They're offering you guys a special deal. Just go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash death of a rockstar to get 30% off your first year. That's distrokid.com slash VIP slash death of a rockstar for 30% off your first year. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now at Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Death of a Rockstar. This is Tupac's story. A boxer in white trunks climbs off the canvas and shakes his head, trying to unscramble his senses. It's less than two minutes into the main event, but it's already over. His legs wobble under him, his eyes flit in and out of focus. The referee steps in and waves it off. Down in the front row, Tupac and Shug holler and whoop. Around them are America's movers, shakers, Hollywood executives, TV moguls, bankers and big shots. But among the high society, there's the underworld. The men who make their millions on street corners, not Wall Street. Dressed up and looking sharp, they've come to Vegas to see Mike Tyson. To revel in his menace, to reflect it at their rivals and then buy drugs, drink, and women at lavish after-parties. As Tyson's announced as the winner, the crowd flies into the lobby of the MGM Grand. Shug, Tupac, and their entourage stride towards the lights, noise, and glitter of the poker tables. And then there's a shout from one of their bodyguards. Two months before, in a shopping mall in Compton, 
the bodyguard had been jumped by a rival gang. He was beaten and robbed, and in a final insult, his attackers ripped a death row pendant from his neck, the same sort Tupac wears on the album cover. Now, one of those attackers is standing 15 yards away, waiting for an elevator. Tupac, high on the adrenaline of Tyson's win, doesn't wait. He rushes up and throws a haymaker. His posse are close behind, kicks and punches rain down. The victim tries to crawl through a blizzard of blows, but the beating goes on. Eventually, Tupac and Suge are satisfied. They barrel out of the hotel in pursuit of a party. Their victim, battered and bruised, slowly picks himself up, dripping blood onto the thick carpet. But in that moment, Tupac ignites a fire he can't escape. The ripped pendant two months before, the chance encounter in the lobby, the threats, insults and posturing, it's all come together. In a town bristling with guns and bravado, the ripples are gathering momentum and a wave of violence is about to wash across the strip. Three hours later, Tupac's flirting, not fighting. He's in the passenger seat of a gleaming black BMW, leaning across Suge to talk to a car of young women. He invites them to a club with a wink and a glint. But while Tupac makes eyes at them, he's in the sights of another vehicle, a white Cadillac, sat across the crossroads, looking for vengeance, looking for Tupac. It started its journey at the Treasure Island Hotel beneath a giant neon skull and crossbones. A group of young men, one bruised and hurting, the rest set for revenge, climb inside. And when they see Tupac and Suge, they've reached their destination. The white Cadillac rolls up alongside the BMW. A hand extends from the back seat through a front window. It's clutching a Glock pistol. Four bullets fire into Tupac. Two hit his chest. Another shatters his arm. A fourth pierces his thigh. The Cadillac speeds off. An ambulance squeals onto the scene. The killer heads over to the state border, disappearing from Nevada's desert, back into Los Angeles' sprawl. And Tupac goes to hospital. Surgeons battle to save him. They remove a lung to stem his bleeding. They put him on a ventilator to help his breathing. But this time, the injuries are too severe. This isn't another twist in the tale. It isn't more seasoning for the beef. It's the end. The headlines make it sound like a simple story. The culture Tupac fed, biting back. Another young black man chasing a gang lifestyle that would leave him in the gutter. There's no context and there's no justice or culprits, only more victims. No one's ever arrested for Tupac shooting. In Compton, in the days after, three people are killed as violence spawns violence. Bigger releases a track. 
It doesn't mention Tupac by name, but references his tattoos, clothes, music and jail time. Biggie raps. Your whole life you live sneaky. Now you rest eternally sleepy. And six months later, he too dies in a drive-by. Again, the shooter's never found. But those who know Tupac, the man, rather than the mirage, see tragedy, not inevitability. They know what could have been. That in a different era, in a different society, the idealist at 17 doesn't wind up a crime statistic at 25. Reverend Al Sharpton, who visited Tupac when he was in prison, tries to change the narrative. This is what he says. I found him a very warm, sensitive and intelligent person, very unlike his public image. Janet Jackson, who appeared in a film with Tupac, also sees depth others don't. He had another side to him. He was fun and silly, she says. I adored him. Then there's an eight-year-old kid, an eight-year-old kid who hasn't met or worked with Tupac, but he sees him as Tupac, fresh out of jail, rolls around Compton making the video for California Love. That kid stands and watches in awe. He loves the swagger, the flow. He listens to Tupac rap about poverty, poverty of justice, opportunity and expectation the traps he sees all around him. The same traps the kid sees as a boy and then as a man. That kid, that man, it's Kendrick Lamar. Another generation dealing with the same problems but finding a new voice. Kendrick raps angry, but about society, not rivals. He wants to change the world. He wins Grammys, Billboard Awards, audiences with the presidents and a Pulitzer Prize. And on the anniversary of Tupac's death, he writes a tribute. The people that you touched on that small intersection changed lives forever. I told myself I wanted to be a voice for man one day. Thank you. Tupac lives on, not in Cuba, not in Haiti, not in South Africa as the conspiracists claim. Not in the hologram the rich kids cheer, but as an inspiration, in deep ideas, not a shallow illusion. You just have to look a little harder. This episode of Death of a Film Star was written by Mike Henson and performed by me, Elroy Spoonface Powell, Spoon the Voice Guy. It was edited by Crawford Blair. For research, we watched Last Man Standing, Nick Broomfield's documentary on Tupac, Biggie, and Suge Knight. We also read from the archives of the Los Angeles Times, Vibe Magazine, The Undefeated, The Baltimore Sun, and Baltimore Magazine. The music we use is from our partner's BMG production music, but if you'd like some Tupac, try Dear Mama, the song he wrote in praise of his mother, Afeni. Brenda's got a baby, about a preteen pregnancy, and the vicious hit him up, which set the East-West Coast rivalry alight. If you'd like another podcast to listen to, try our series, Death of a Film Star, and start with the incredible Chadwick Boseman. Thanks for listening.
Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on the corner of Gray Street. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is a rock and roll city for sure. Get down! The Wrath of the Buzzard. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts.